Hello guys, welcome to our podcast, Tolkia. So my name is Jihan and I'll be your guide for today and the next as well. So anyway, today we have our very special guest as always because I don't want to sit here all alone. But for today, we're not going to have a conversation with other OIA buddies, but instead we're going to have a conversation with Mr. Victor Purnomo. Hi, sir. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you doing, sir? For convenience, you can call me just Victor. That's fine with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. No worries. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing good today. Yeah. I'm pleased to meet you. How's everything at WC? Is it nice now? Yeah, it's pretty nice, but we uh, currently are going to have an online, uh, okay. online study until the next semester. But I think the next semester, we are going to have half and half study. Like half online. Okay, like hybrid. Yeah, I, I, in in Sweden they call it hybrid program or something. Like half is online and half is offline, basically. Yeah. Oh, so it's applied in every country, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're eager to go back to the normal situation, but apparently we can't do it really soon. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> It's unfortunate situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, so before moving on, I want to introduce our guest. So he is Victor Purnomo, who was once a lecturer in UIC, but now he's uh, in Sweden to continue his study. All right, before today, we have an extra special guest. So I'm going to ask uh, questions that is kind of related to his study and his experience in Sweden. Okay, so first question that I'm sure that people wanted to know. What are you doing there as if what kind of study do you do and what university do you attend, something like that? All right, so uh, as you know, my name is Victor and I was a lecturer at uh, UC, the department in the Department of Chemical Engineering to be exact. And um, right now I'm a PhD student and it's been uh, almost two years, 20 months to be, no, no, 22 months to be exact. So almost two years, basically. And um, uh, yeah, I'm taking my PhD at Chalmers University of Technology. Uh, maybe for you who live in Indonesia, it's kind of like the IT, ETS of Indonesia, something like the, the second best Institute of Technology in Sweden. And um, I'm taking, apparently not uh, not chemical engineering, but uh, I'm taking energy and environment. But still the, the focus of the study is still similar and it's the same. Uh, our, the topic is about chemical looping classification. Maybe you can Google it later. Because I believe right now we're, I mean, today we're not talking about that. So yeah. That's what I'm doing right now. Okay, so uh, which which university did you attend? Uh, it's Chalmers, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S. It's in Gothenburg. I mean, the city is called Gothenburg, the second biggest city in Sweden. So it's kind of unique because I come from Surabaya, which is also the second biggest city in Indonesia. But of course, the situation is really, really different. Like in Surabaya, I believe we have 2.8 million people. And surprisingly, Gothenburg 
also has similar area basically i mean in terms of area that Gothenburg covers is more or less similar with the size of Surabaya, but most of it is natural park. Mm. So forest or lake. So the population apparently is very much different. While I say Surabaya have uh, Surabaya has 2.8 million people, here they only have 600,000. And maybe with the metropolitan area, it's only 1 million or so. So it's second biggest city, but some people make a joke that no, it's actually just the largest village in Sweden. So uh, they say the only city is Stockholm, which is apparently the capital of Sweden. Maybe it's 2.5 or 3 million people or so. But yeah, that's it. The situation with a country that is really already near to the North Pole. <laughs> Not so many people here. And uh, the country itself only has around 10 million people. Like, it's less than the population of Jakarta, I believe. <laughs> wow. <laughs> around 3 million is in Stockholm, 1 million is Gothenburg and around, so the other 6 million is just scattered around very many big, uh, small cities and towns. And the size of Sweden itself is maybe like Sumatra, so it's quite big, but only with 10 million people. So you can imagine, there's a lot of nature, sites and forests, or maybe animals. Yeah, we will talk about that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's very unique because I actually stalk your Instagram and I saw okay. so, so many beautiful views there, like I'm jealous. They surprisingly are, yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, how did you go to college usually? Are you by walk or by bus? Yeah, so uh, um, I right now I live quite near to the university. It's like you just need five, five sorry, 15 minutes walk. So basically I walk, yeah, more, more or less. But you know, sometimes we're a bit late. But there is also interesting uh, uh, facility that you can use when sometimes I'm a bit late. Yeah, you know, this and that happen. We are we are all students after all. So there is an electric scooter as well. I mean, there is bus, but but uh, surprisingly, even though it is close distance, the bus can can't go directly. So if I were to use bus, the I should change once from one bus to another bus. And so. I prefer this electric scooter while, while I'm running out of time. It only takes me five minutes. So basically you just pay from your phone. So you scan the barcode on the, it's like a scooter that point teletubbies use, just it's electric. So you don't do anything instead of just, yeah, try hold it steadily and it will go directly but they have like a speed limit of maximum 20 kilometer per hour. So it's not really dangerous. It's quite safe. Yeah, it will take you around five or six minutes, depends. But sometimes we have snowy days and it's quite slippery. And if you insist on taking the electric scooter, it can take you a bit slower, yeah, so to say. Yeah. So I'm sure you walk more than when you are in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> So uh, maybe we can uh, 
throwing back like when did you come to Sweden and when did you start your study? Okay, so I I believe it was 16th of May into 2019. So it's yeah, as I said it's almost two years. Yeah, around now it's been 21 or 22 months. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> okay, so this is the question that I'm really curious that I want to ask to you. Uh, when did mm -hmm. you decide to study abroad and why? Why were you uh, have, uh, where, where, why were you decided to continue your study while you were in the middle of your career in UCSB? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really good question. So it wasn't really, it wasn't an, an easy journey, actually. I mean, I've, I've been uh, planning to continue to my PhD study for a while. I mean, I graduated from my master's education in 2015. But then, uh, back then, I, I really wanted to continue my study directly to PhD, but I didn't get any scholarships. That's why I, I uh, what to say, I put that plan up. I, sorry, I put off that plan. Uh, so to say I delayed that plan. And then, so it, I mean, it's been five years or so, or six now, it's now 2021, yes. So almost six years I have, I've been planning to do that. But then I got really serious in searching for the information and also apply to this and that university. I thought it was April 2018, so to say. So the process itself took me almost 10 months because I got accepted in the February of 2019. It was actually Chinese New Year as well at the time. <laughs> so like Chinese New Year two years ago. Yeah. It's, that is when I got accepted. But then the process itself took me around 10 months. Like I've been rejected multiple times. If I remember, it was 47 or 48 times before I got accepted to Chalmers. Yeah. Oh, that's a long journey, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was. And wait, uh, how many years do you plan your study are going to be finished? Yeah, it's, it's quite some time. It's gonna be, I mean, it's expected to, to be completed in 2024. <laughs> quite long so it's yeah the, the program itself is expected to last for five years uh but i need to explain a bit about this so basically the the, the start the phd study in sweden i mean they can vary between universities but usually it takes you four years to finish i mean the study itself but apparently what makes it unique is that we're working here I mean, we are considered studying and working at the same time. So we are also expected to do some departmental work in, uh, I mean, it's not only like attending classes and doing research. We, also, we are also expected to be a teaching assistant, for example. And there's also another departmental work. Right now I'm also supervising some bachelor students in their thesis, basically. So like, yeah, you're a student, but you're also a worker. 
sometimes also teach them as a part of your work. So it's a bit different with the PhD that I used to wonder and know. That's why uh, this departmental work also account to some time. So they calculate. And uh, I mean, even in, in, in Chalmers itself, between departments, they have different policies. But then, uh, so some departments say, okay, let's put you for four years and then we'll, we'll count later how, how many, I mean, how much time you spend on the departmental work, such as teaching, as I told you. And maybe you, you will spend a total of four and a half years, something like that. But in my device, I mean, in my program, they say directly, okay, it should be five years. So your departmental work should be equal to one year, more or less. So it's different policy. The other one say we will calculate later, but my department say we set it now and you'll, you'll fulfill it as how it was set in the early place. So something like that. Oh, so okay. the study takes four years and the work, the other work takes one year. That's why it's five years. Oh, so maybe can you tell us more about your process for getting chance to continue your study abroad? Maybe like what kind of program did you apply and is it a self-funded scholarship or is it full-funded, something like that? Okay, okay. Uh, well, this is a bit different uh, maybe with the other PhD that, as I told you, I used to know the other form of PhD that, I mean, I can't say for sure, but Generally, the, the, uh, how, how, how would I put it? Uh, the system that we know usually take place in countries like East Asian countries like Japan, Taiwan, China probably. I mean, they all have different system, but usually what we have in our mind is that they have general admission and then we apply to that. Sometimes we are also required to uh, submit a research proposal where you elaborate your idea what you're going to do in your PhD. Of course, it can change, but at least uh, some universities there want to know if you have some idea about what you're going to do during your PhD. So usually you're required to submit your research proposal, CV of course, and and then everything. I mean, in that system, but not with my the system in Sweden and in many European countries, I would say. I mean, every European country also have different, also has different policy. But then, in I can say, for example, in Sweden, uh, so PhD here, as I told you, is considered working. So they will not advertise. We're looking for twenty students or something, but they advertise it like in a really, really uh, specific uh, vacancy. I would say. So every university have their web page for vacancy, like you're, you're applying for a job basically. And there is also, of course, vacancy for research or postdoctoral research or professorship, but also for PhD student apparently. So it's advertised. It's not like we need a PhD student in chemical engineering, for example. No, it's not that broad. The PhD student will work in specific, for example, uh, a new novel material from silicon or whatever for solar cell, for example, or uh, yeah, anything basically. Uh, but 
uh, fast biofuel-driven battery for electric car, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm just making it up. But something that is really, really specific like that. And in my situation, the, the vacancy was a busy student working for uh, the development of chemical looping gasification. So it's really, really specific. And then they will elaborate what what is expected from me, what background they prefer to, uh, I mean, they expect to, that is the candidate has, something like that. Um, I would say if I were to reflect on that first thing first, when you look for a BSD position, or I don't know if, I don't know with masters, it might be different, it could be different, but for BSD position, it's better that you have master's background or yeah, or any background. I mean, you can have work background as well. That is really related to the BSC project you're applying to. The reason I got rejected for so many times is that at, at the first time, I didn't know that this was the case. So my background in uh, my master was about something to reflection of paralysis. I wouldn't explain that here. You can Google it later. But I can say it's like a, a way to produce bioenergy, so to say. So more like sustainable or renewable energy. And then I did try my luck uh, to apply to another field that is not really related to this energy. And it was really hard because I didn't have any qualifications apart from my master's studies. I mean, except maybe I was a professional in other things, maybe I could do that. But then once I uh, applied to this gasification that is really related to paralysis actually, they start to get interested in me. Uh, I mean, this is kind of good candidate because I have a, have a suitable master's background. I mean, suitable background that I can use in my business study. So that's one key. I think that's why when, maybe for you bachelor students in UEC, when you want to continue to master's first, think about your master properly if you really want to continue to be your PhD so that you wouldn't, you know, like regret it later, so to say. So it was a long process because I didn't know. But then uh, I learned from my friend who got admitted earlier. I mean, I have some friends that helped me during the process, like giving advice and recommendations. And then they said, no, you, you should apply to the one that is really close to you. And one thing also, I was, uh, I don't know, maybe this was a culture that we have in JF Island, so to say, that don't boast, be humble. So don't say what you can do. But apparently that's not what they need. They need me to say it loud, loud, what, what I have experienced, what I've learned and what I'm capable to and what is what what my dream is so like if you're you can't convince them convince them you they would wouldn't be interested in you so at, uh, at first i i only wrote some letters that is really simple but then you know such kind of letter all people can write it so basically if you don't write something unique they wouldn't be interested in you that much so then I, uh, my, my friend, my best friend gave me a really good advice. You should wrote what is unique about you, like what, it, what other people can have. Okay, then it needs some time to think it through. And then I wrote it, okay. 
uh, I can do this. I have this special experience where I'm working because my, in my master, I was working also in research institute, not only in the university. So I said, okay, I work in a past research institute. It was in Taiwan at that time, something like that. And then from there, I mean, I just realized that maybe in August or September. So after that, some, some university starts to get more interested to me. I mean, while before that, there was no, like, no interest at all. There were like, this application is ordinary. So it's really good. Like, I, I'm not saying that you should be arrogant or snob, uh, be a snob, but then you should know what qualifications you have and you should be proud of it and don't hesitate to say it out loud. Oh, I can do this. I can be a good asset for the study and I can also arrange my own study. Yeah, that's what I would say. Well, that's a nice tips that I uh, can highlight from your saying that first is if you want to take PhD, prepare your master uh, carefully because that is going to relate to your PhD later, right? And the second yeah. is show your potential and show your ability because that's what people want to know. If you keep it inside, uh, people won't know your ability, right? There. Yeah, that's the most important thing, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how many countries did you apply to? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's a tough question. So maybe uh, I'm not sure. I didn't really count, but I'm sure more than 10, but maybe less than 20. Yeah, so, I mean, applying is quite simple. I, I can say in Europe. Because you, I mean, uh, that's one reason why I applied mostly to Europe. I mean, I also applied to Taiwan, I believe. I mean, I, I prepare myself if nobody wants me, then maybe I can continue to Taiwan again, something like that. No, I'm not saying Taiwan is bad. It's just I have my backup plan because I know how the education in Taiwan looks like already. So, yeah. Yeah, we never know what, what would happen. So I prepare my backup in Taiwan because I, I was there, basically. Uh, but then the thing about Europe is that you don't have to pay any application fee, which occurs when you apply to the university in the, in the States, I mean, in the USA, in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand. Some of them requires you to pay some fee. I mean, even... even if after that you got rejected, they, they won't refund your fee. So that's one thing that is not so nice for me because, yeah, I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, it is very risky for me. So that's why I applied to Europe. And everything was online, even before pandemic. Like, you just submit your document online. Like, for example, what I know is that... Um, sometimes if you want to send your documents to some... East Asian countries, sometimes you really need to send it by post. That's what I believe. Sometimes. I mean, I, I'm saying this as general knowledge. Everything is not for exact. But sometimes it's like that. But in Europe, you just upload it. Like, just have your... Yeah, this is also important. You, you should have your document ready, basically. So don't apply and then, oh, I don't have this document. No, have everything ready, like the translation of the diploma or transcript. If possible, maybe you should have some legitimate, 
it's I mean have the document like Alice, like Alice even in Indonesian, and also uh, like CV. I mean you should have your own template. Don't copy the other template. Yeah, maybe I can say this. So, uh, in 2020, I was uh, the regional coordinator of Indonesian Student Association in Gothenburg, PPI Gothenburg. So to say, I mean, uh, I, I was the leader, and I, and then I got a lot of requests in social media, such as, uh, "Can you show us your cover or motiv motivation letter?" And then so that I can see how it looks like. But then we were we were thinking, no, it should be your motivation letter. Why would you copy from another person, right? So never try the shortcut way. You should write your in your own way. Because, you know, let's say, let's imagine a professor or an employer for your PhD, they look upon hundreds of applications. And if they all sound the same, they will just throw it away. It's like, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, nothing unique with this. So basically, if you copy someone else and you think you will succeed, no, it's really wrong. You will get rejected completely because it's like, I saw this before. This is the same thing, boring, something like that. So yeah, I got a lot of requests. Like I know in Indonesia, there's nothing for sure. We need some guidance. We need some template, but that's not how it works here. Like you should love yourself. I can say you should be unique. You should, be, you should believe that you can do that. Basically. So yeah, it was a, yeah, how many counts? Yeah, that was a simple question, but then I can say that I tried here in many European countries, and that's the nicest thing because uh, you can upload it for free. So it's like, yeah, nothing to lose. If I don't get accepted, it's fine. If I get accepted, lucky me. I mean, that was I was what I thought. But then, yeah, I later on this on the process, I I realized, yeah, I really need to do something special, not only just doing it all over again and again. So you can have your own sentence whenever you have your cover letter but then you should be careful because when you apply to another university of course you don't want to have like you forgot to change the name of the university and then as i told you the, the field is quite specific so you can't say it only that oh i did my experience this and then you say now i want to apply to this uh, application or this vacancy it you should say another reason, right? Because it's another vacancy, they have another uh, discipline. So yeah, you can have your own template, but you need to always make almost a new cover letter every day, every time you apply to another position. So it's, yeah, you should realize, you should try to understand what position it is. It's not just like changing the title of the vacancy and that's it you send. No, no, it's not like, a, you know, WhatsApp spam or something. You really need to think it through. Like, why do I want this position? And what can I give to this position? And why would they want me? Something like that. <clears throat> what What could make me make me special in front of their eyes? Yeah. So it's I can say you can apply to as many things as you. Want. I mean, as many many countries or universities as you want. But you should realize why you would be there. What do you want in your in life? And again, I can say the results of your study is mainly for yourself. 
I mean, you need to progress in care even your your next career after PhD, right? It's just like life ends after PhD. It's not like that. So uh, I can say don't try to please your supervisor. I mean, your supervisor to be or your the employer. Don't try to please them only, but also try to say that I have a plan for my life and that's what usually what makes them interested because you're a guy of a woman, of course, but you're a man with a plan. Like you're not just saying that, okay, I will, I will follow you. I, I agree with all. I would say that's not the, what European people like, so to say. They want you to have idea and creativity. So it's like, yeah, you should have your own, even though you don't submit proposals. Yeah, yeah. So in most European countries, you don't submit proposals because they already have this specified. So it's basically if you follow them. But also you need to say that I can contribute to this. My background in this field can benefit the project itself or something like that. But don't write it like just, uh, you know, something sweet, but you, then you have to really mean it because they will they will remember what you say. <laughs> it's four or five years. They will remember why they choose you in the beginning. Why? Because every from every vacancy, most of the time they will only accept one people, one person. Sorry. So it's uh, it it can be from sixty hundreds who knows applicant, and they only will choose one person. That's what makes it different with the PhD admission system that we know. Maybe they accept five, three. That was I understood in Taiwan. They say so. This year we will accept five students, three students, but without any like specific requirements what research you are going to be in. It's just say in department, for example, in civil engineering or something, we will accept five students. But here it's very specific. So that's why they will accept usually only one. But sometimes it can be two if it's stated on the vacancy. Oh, we want two students. It can be like that. But I never saw like three or four. It's just tough competition, but it's for free. So why not? That's what I thought. <laughs> okay, to anyone who is listening, uh, who's listening now, uh, you should take a note what he just said because it's uh, an important le- learning, <laughs> especially if you want to continue your PhD in Sweden or in Europe, especially.